Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and just would acknowledge to you that we are steeped in pride in so many ways. And that pride is making it so difficult for us to trust you. And so we pray today that as we open your word and it speaks to us about that pride, that you'd give us ears to hear. And Lord, I know because I experience it in my own life, that one of the manifestations of pride is that it makes it hard to hear when someone wants to talk to us about our pride. And so I pray specifically today by the power of your spirit that you would break down that barrier that pride creates. Just break that down. Allow us to hear. Uh, Include myself in that prayer, Lord Jesus, and pray that you would make us people who uh, would participate with you in your work of bringing humility into our lives so that we might be people of faith. Would you make it so? We trust the authority of your word now. We wanna set our eyes in it and set our hearts upon it. And we trust, Lord, that it's not just good advice, but that it is a living word, powerful to shape us. And so we give ourselves to the power of your spirit through your word now so that the name of Jesus would be exalted. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 28. That's where we're going to be today. <clears throat> so we are starting a new section in the book of Isaiah today. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we have been on a journey through the book of Isaiah. And we find ourselves in chapter 28 today. We're just going to look at one chapter. And just by way of recap, since we're entering a new section, I'll tell you that uh, if you've been with us, you've noticed the first 12 chapters of Isaiah were really all about Isaiah speaking to God's people on behalf of God and saying, hey, God wants to prepare you to serve him. There's things that you've got going on as a nation, as individuals. They're not pleasing to God. He wants to bring those things to an end. And so he's preparing God's people to serve God and to be used by him. And then in chapters 13 through 27, so a pretty good long stretch there, chapters 13 through 27, what we saw is that God turns his attention to the nations that surround Israel and surround Judah. And he's saying to them, uh, a word of hope and a word of judgment. He's saying, there's a word of hope that you can be saved if you would come to me, the one true God, and forsake all the false gods that you worship and forsake all the ways that you have rejected me. If you'd, if you'd let go of those, that's a word of hope to you. If you won't, then judgment will come. And so that's what chapters 13 through 27 were really about, a word of hope and judgment to the nations. Now we enter into an interesting section of Isaiah, chapters 28 through 37. And those chapters, those 10 chapters, are really, uh, they're poems, oddly enough. Now, they're not going to sound a lot like poems. They're not going to sound like, um, you know, your Dr. Seuss that you're used to, right? Because that's the poetry we all read, at least in my house with two-year-old. So they're not going to sound a lot like that kind of poetry, but they are going to be poetic in nature. And what these poems are all about is that God is saying to his people, I want you to learn to trust me. These next 10 chapters are just, that's the one prevailing message through the whole thing is you must learn to trust me. I'm God, I'm in charge, I'm good. My people, I want you to trust me. Now that's probably 10 chapters that we need in our lives, yeah? Now the context of this is interesting. If you remember earlier in the book, we talked about how uh, Judah, the kingdom that Israel is ministering to, speaking to, they had a decision to make. They had Assyria is this big power on the rise in the ancient Near East, and Israel, their northern neighbor, who's their brothers and sisters, um, and Syria 
made an alliance together and they came to Judah and they said, we want you to make an alliance with us to defend ourselves against Assyria. And Judah chose, rather than making an alliance with Israel and Syria, they made an alliance with Assyria, the rising power. And Isaiah was saying to the kings of Judah, to the leaders of Judah, that's unwise. You need to trust God, not trust in Assyria and their power to protect you from Israel and Syria. And now we enter into a new context. So many years have passed. And in the context of where we are now, what's happening is that Assyria has come to full flower. They are in power uh, and they are strong. And so now Judah's in the uh, unenviable position of needing to be protected from this massive power that is Assyria. And the kings of Judah have a choice to make, whether they will trust God or whether they will make another alliance with somebody to be protected. And guess what choice they make? Rather than trusting in God, they choose to trust in an alliance with Egypt. So now they find a new partner and they say, Egypt, won't you come and give us your military strength to help protect us from Assyria, who is now our former ally and attacking us. We need help. And Isaiah is going to say again to God's people, that's a foolish choice. Don't trust in the power of Egypt. And we're going to see that laid out very clearly. He's going to name Assyria not by name in chapter 28. He'll name them by name in the future chapters, but that that um, covenant with Egypt is the background. He's gonna call it a covenant with death in chapter 28. He said, you've made a covenant with death, which is just to say there's no hope in the covenant with Egypt. There's no hope in that strength. You think they're strong, they're not. So church family, what I want you to get is that these next 10 chapters are really all about trusting God. You got it? Fair enough, awesome. So here's what we're gonna find specifically about trusting God in Isaiah 28. He's going to tell us, this is the major theme of Isaiah chapter 28. He's gonna tell us that pride gets in the way of trusting God. That pride and trusting God really can't live together. They get in one another's way. Therefore, if we wanna trust God, we're gonna have to make war. We're gonna have to wage war on our pride. That's the prevailing message of Isaiah 28. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about what, what illustrates that. And I came across a story of two animals. I'm gonna show them to you. Uh, see if you know these animals. This is uh, the sweet prairie dog and the less sweet burrowing owl, okay? If you're unfamiliar with these two, their relationship is a lot like the relationship between pride and trusting God. I'll tell you how. Uh, the prairie dog makes these really awesome burrows. It spends a lot of time and energy. It's a homemaker. It does a really fantastic job of creating this warm and inviting and wonderful burrow in which to live. And usually lives in a community of other prairie dogs. You've seen them out sticking their, popping their heads out, right? You've seen the Nature Channel shows or whatever. And so they make these burrows. And wherever prairie dogs live, that burrowing owls also live, burrowing owls have their name for a reason because they don't make their own homes. They sit at a distance, watch the prairie dogs make their homes. And then when that home is all nice and tidy and done, guess what the burrowing owl does? He decides to take that house. And so he shows up and he gives the prairie dog a choice, leave or die. That's the choice you get, which the prairie dog usually says, I will go ahead and make my way out, right? And so... Here's, here's why I show you the prairie dog and the burrowing owl. Because as I said, the relationship between those two creatures and the relationship between pride and trusting God is very similar. You know, trusting, trusting God uh, makes a really nice home in our heart. It, it attempts to make itself at home in us and create a wonderful space for flourishing and thriving. And then this awful creature called pride identifies that warm home and comes and kicks trust of God out and makes its home. The two never coexist. There's no point where the burrowing out and the prairie dog say, you know what, why don't we just divide this burrow in half? 
We'll just draw a line right down the middle. You take that side, I'll take this side, and we'll both be at home here. That doesn't work very well for the burrowing owl and the prairie dog. They don't live well together. In the same way, pride and trust in God never live together. They never make their home in the same heart. Where pride is present, it will give trust in God one of two choices, leave or die. And leaving is dying in that case, to use that illustration. So again, what Isaiah is going to say to us in this chapter is he's going to say, friends, don't you know that if you won't wage war on your pride, if you won't go to work on all the sources of pride in your life and participate with God in the elimination of that pride, if you won't do that, there will be no room left for trusting God. It will not be able to make a home in your heart. Okay, you with me, church? You with me, church? Yes. All right. Awesome. Let's start to look at it then together. Pride prevents us from trusting God, so we must go to war on pride. Let's look at the text. We'll just take it piece by piece now. Look at the first four verses. Isaiah 28, starting in verse 1. It says, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. So in these first four verses, there's some poetic language there. There's some, there's some imagery used there. And what God is saying through Isaiah is that he is all about the destruction of all the sources of pride in our lives. In, other, in fact, we would say that the destruction of all our sources of pride in our life is inevitable. So Isaiah is painting this picture and he's saying, this proud crown, all these things that you take and think make you valuable and good and strong, all the things you take pride in and wear as a crown, I will take them off your head and, crash and crush them under my feet. I will trod on them because they are not something that I will allow to be maintained in your life. And so what God is essentially saying to his people is I will have no competitors for my glory in your life. God is not in the business of sharing space when it comes to competition for his glory and for affection, our affection for him. He commands it all and seeks after it all. And by his mercy, he does that because it's also what is best for us. And so he's saying to his people, I will destroy all your sources of pride. I will cast all your crowns down and I will trod on them. And because that's the case, the only question that remains for us is, Will we participate with God in this activity or will we resist him in it? If the destruction of all of our sources of pride is inevitable, then the, our choice is not whether or not we will be able to prevent that from happening or not. Our choice is only whether we will participate with God in the destruction of pride or whether we will resist him in the destruction of pride. Do you follow me? You will not, no matter how strong you are, no matter how wise you are, no matter how smart, you will not be able to prevent God from taking the things that you place your pride in and eliminating them from your life. And the great irony is when you make the things that are a source of pride, when you make them that source of pride, 
The great irony is that you make them something God will then take out of your life. He will remove them because he's not in the business of competing for your affections. He'll just take those, those crowns, he'll cast them down and trod them under his feet. And church, family, recognize that most of the things that we place pride in that become sources of pride, identity, sense of value for us, most of the things are not bad things. They're good things that we turn into ultimate things. And when we turn them into ultimate things, we turn them into a competition for God, uh, a competition with God for his affection. And so he eliminates those things. You can experience, and I can experience, God's removal of sources of pride in one of two ways. If we choose to participate with him in the removal of sources of pride in our life, then we will experience his hand as a hand of gentleness. And we will experience his hand as one which we are excited to see move in our life to remove sources of pride. But if we resist him, that doesn't mean he's not going to work to remove sources of pride. It only means that we will experience that removal of pride in a much more difficult way. We will find that it feels like something being ripped from us, torn from us. It will feel like the ground opens up underneath our feet and we're not quite sure that we're on stable ground any longer when he does that work because we have failed to partner with him in it. So here's what I would say. If this this whole sermon is aimed at helping us and this text is aimed at helping us wage war on our pride and the first thing we need to see about how we do that is that if we can acknowledge, if we can know that God will remove our pride, that it's not an if but a when, right? It's not an if, but a win when it comes to God removing sources of pride in our life, then logically speaking, we can, we can tell ourselves it makes more sense to participate with him rather than to resist him in it. It is going to happen. It's just a matter of whether I will be a participant or an adversary to God in that endeavor. So that's, that's the first thing he's telling us to help us wage war on pride. Now look with me at verses seven and eight. Let's move past verses one through four and let's look at verses seven and eight because the next thing he's gonna say to us there is this. Pride leads to self-indulgence and self-indulgence makes us foolish. Pride leads to self-indulgence and self-indulgence leads to foolish choices. So look at how he says it in verse seven and eight. It's a graphic image, right? He says, these also... Reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. So we have to ask, well, who are the these that are staggering? And he answers that at the end of verse seven. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Now, how do you like that for an image? Right? Pretty exciting, came to church today, get a good picture of a table filled to the brim with vomit, right? The point, and it's meant to be a graphic image because the point is he's saying the people who should be the leaders of my people, the priest and the prophet, have no ability to actually discern what is wise. They are fools. They stumble and stagger in vision because they have indulged themselves, in this case, with wine to the degree that, and this is the picture he's painting, imagine, prophets and priests sitting around a table so staggeringly drunk that they continue to vomit on the table over and over again until there's not a square inch of space left upon that table, which is clean. That's disgusting. And what God is saying is your pride 
your sense, again, verses one through four, the arrogant crown, because of that pride, you have become self-indulgent to the degree that this picture is true of you, that I've just, this disgusting picture that I've just painted is true of you. And it is making you absolutely, he says, you are reeling, prophets and priests, reeling in vision. In other words, it's the picture of someone stumbling around drunk with no ability to discern what the right way to go is, and they can barely get one foot in front of the other. Now, if someone said, hey, let's do a backpacking trip, and they were so fall down drunk that they couldn't stand up, would you follow that person? Not a good idea, right? And these are the leaders of his people. And so here, let me, let me ask two questions. So the first question that we have to ask is, what, what is the relationship or why does pride lead to self-indulgence? Because that's what he's saying, that you're, you're indulging every whim, every desire to the, to the place of just being fall down drunk, right? And he's like, that's your self-indulgent and it's your pride that led to that. Well, the reason pride leads to self-indulgence is because pride is the conviction that I am good in an ultimate sort of a way, not just I'm a nice person, right? But I am good and therefore if I am ultimately good and the determiner of good in my life, then it must be that all my desires are what? Good. Therefore, I should indulge all of my desires. Now, church, Think through this because this is true of God and God alone. It is true that every desire ha God has is what? Good and right. Whatever God determines to do by definition because he has done it is good and right. Should God choose to take life or to spare life, whichever he chooses by definition, it is a good act because he has, as God has done it. God does not need to uh, meet some standard of goodness, God creates the standard of goodness so that everything he does by definition is good. Do you follow that? That is true of him. It is not true of us. How many of you know your desires have led you astray before? Now, I don't mean to say that all your desires are wicked and evil. I do think God sanctifies our desires. He shapes them over time as we walk with him so that we can at points go, I, I, I'm experiencing a good desire a God-honoring desire, and I can live that out. I can walk in that. But it is not always so. And there are times where our desires, depending on our connectedness to Christ, quite honestly, there are times where our desires would lead us astray. They would lead us into foolish choices. And because our desires are not always good, then we cannot just always indulge those desires. But the prideful person, the, the proud person says, I am good, therefore my desires are good. They apply God's standard to themselves. And they say, in the same way that God says all that is good and defines it, I will now define all that is good in my life. Because I'm proud and I believe that's true, right? And therefore, then I can indulge every desire because I'm good, therefore it must be good. And then, now the next question is, if that's why self-indulgence or why pride leads to self-indulgence, the next question is why does self-indulgence lead to foolishness? Why does, why does indulging all of our desires lead to foolishness? And the answer is given in the image in those verses that we just read, verses seven and eight. The answer is that being so uh, in love with ourselves indulge, and indulging our desires is the equivalent of being drunk, right? So if being drunk on beer causes me to not be able to see the room straight, 
right? If I'm fall down drunk on beer, I can't see the room straight. Being drunk on self-love causes me to not see the world straight and not see my life straight so that I stagger and reel and stumble when I am sated with love of self. Pride leads to self-indulgence and self-indulgence leads to foolish choices. And so what God is essentially doing, he's saying, okay, here's how you make war on pride. Number one, know that I'm in the business of eliminating all your sources of pride. So partner with me, because that's, what, that's what's gonna happen. And number two, then he says, you need, to, you need to understand the link between foolish choices and your pride, that pride will always result in making foolish choices. I have yet to meet the person that if you say, do you wanna make wise choices or do you wanna make foolish choices? I have yet to meet the person that chooses foolishness on purpose. Right? Do you know that person? I know a lot of people that make foolish choices. I don't know a lot that aim at foolishness. So if we're not aiming at it, why do we end up in it so often? And the answer, friends, a lot of times is pride creating self-indulgence and self-indulgence creating foolishness. So that's number two, learning the connection because we're not aiming at foolishness. That's not what we want. So we make war on pride by knowing that it leads to foolish decisions. The third thing that we see uh, is in verses nine through 13. And I'll state it this way. Finding God's word, the Bible, finding God's word boring or dismissing its authority is an indication that we are proud. It's an indication that we are proud. So one of the ways we can wage war on pride is by assessing ourselves and understanding what has been my attitude towards God's word. If I find that I am bored with God's word, or if I find that I dismiss its authority in certain areas, because quite frankly, I just wanna do what I wanna do, and I don't like what God's word tells me is the standard, if that's taking place in my life, there's a good chance that pride is making its home in my heart and it's going to push trust of God out. So look at verses nine through 13. Look at how he says it. He says, to whom will he, and he's talking about God, to whom will God teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. In other words, what he's saying is, if the prophets and priests are so staggeringly drunk that I can't teach them and use them to teach my people, who am I gonna use? And he asked the question, should I use babies, basically? Should I get the little infants? They seem to be the only ones untainted by this pride, right? And then it says, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. In other words, there's no one among my people that I can use to speak to my people because they're so steeped in pride. So now what will I do? I'll bring a foreigner, I'll bring another nation to communicate my message. And then in verse 12, to whom he has said, this is what he said to his people, this is rest. This is what rest looks like. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. Yet they would not hear. In other words, he said, take care of the oppressed. Take care of the needy. And they wouldn't do it. And then verse 13. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So here's what God is saying. Isaiah is declaring 
to these people God's word. He's saying, this is what God says. And the leaders who are staggeringly drunk are saying to Isaiah, that is boring, simplistic stuff. We don't care. Precept upon precept, line upon line. It's as if they're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. We get it, Isaiah. Enough of that already. We knew that stuff long ago and we've moved on. We got better, wiser things that we're dealing with here. We are really smart people, okay? We don't need your simplistic message about take care of the poor. Trust in God. We don't care. You're boring us. That's essentially what Isaiah is now communicating from God. You are viewing God's word as dull and boring and as if it doesn't apply to you and you're negating its authority in your life. So church family, the same principle comes down to us all these many years later, doesn't it? To say, if we find God's word dull, perhaps it's pride that is causing that to happen. Perhaps there's something in us that is proud that would say, I'm just, I'm just bored with God's word. Now, look, I'm with you. I know that there are parts of God's word that are hard to understand. But you and I must embrace that every part, every syllable of God's word is true and effective and God-breathed and useful for training us and making us his people and shaping us in his image. And there's nothing boring about that. This is the living word of God that is meant to reveal the living Holy One. The one who created and flung stars into the sky reveals himself to you, condescends to reveal himself to you through his written word. Every word, every syllable in, in this cannot ultimately contain language. God is beyond language. He is beyond every word written in his word. And yet, so he stretches the very fabric of those words as if to say, they can barely contain my wonder and awesomeness, but I'm going to give you these words because it's the best that you, you've got, right? And so when you go to God's word and you study his word, friends, it is alive, it is not dull. I was talking with some friends this week, and or last couple of weeks, talking with some friends, and they were sharing that they have made it a habit, uh, this, this small group of friends, to text one another to say, are, are you up and are you in God's word every morning? Just to encourage one another. Hey, time to get up, time to be in God's word. Let's go. Um, and they've been doing that regularly for a little while now. And what's so interesting is they were just sharing that they are encountering now circumstances and situations in life that prior to making it a, their, their just regular habit to be disciplined, to be up in God's word, prior to that, they would have encountered these situations very differently. This is what they were saying. That I, I'm not sure how I would have handled this very difficult circumstance. And yet I find myself now trusting God. Huh, it's not an accident. God's word is unlike any book you've ever read. I mean, your favorite novel, whatever it is that you can read a thousand times, it's great. It's filled with symbolism and wonderful storytelling and it's great language and you love it. It is not alive. God's word is filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit who when you read it and open it will move through that word to 
absolutely pour into your life to revolutionize the person that you are, if you will give yourself to the word of God, if you will surrender yourself to God's truth in his word, it will change you. And friends, you won't feel it the first time you sit down. You won't go, oh, here's a circumstance. Let me try and find a verse that applies. And go, oh, okay, that's good. That's encouraging. I mean, you can do that. That's not bad. But don't expect that your life is going to be revolutionized and turned upside down and steeped in trust for God because you once in a while open the Bible to deal with the problem. You must be saturated in God's word every day. And when you do, you will not feel on day one or day two or day three or day four, you will not feel the grips of pride loosening from you. You will not feel the grips of sin loosening on you. Men, you will not feel that you are starting to love, love the things of God and hate pornographic images. You will not feel that you are beginning to become a servant every morning when you do it. But friends, it is happening and I can guarantee that it's happening because God's word is not just a book because it is living, alive. And when you give yourself to it, it will change you. But you do it over and over and over and over. One of the biggest problems we have with how we study God's word in our day and age is that we go to God's word and we say, what can I find that applies to my life right now today? Which is not a bad question to ask. It's just not the first question to ask. The first question anyone should ask when they open God's word is they say, what does this say about you, God? What does this tell me about you? Because the greatest gift of God's word and the thing that transforms us through the reading and study of God's word is that it reveals the living one to us, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of the entire universe, the one who is so beautiful and astounding that one glimpse of him changes everything in a life. One true glimpse of the king. And he's given you his word and said, here's more than a glimpse, my friend. Here's a word that is pulsing and beating with life. Now come to it. Saturate yourself in it. Understand what it says. Study it. Give yourself to it. Trust me, I have never met the person who has devoted themselves to diligent study of God's word, to daily rising, who has said, man, I really regret the sleep I lost because I got up early to be in God's word. I've never heard the person say, man, I, I, really, I could have gotten, gotten one more episode of Sports Center in. You know? By the way, they rerun the same highlights six episodes in a row. Because don't worry, I get my Sports Center in too. God's word, my friends, if you find it boring, if you find it dull, can I just graciously say that's an indicator that pride is taking root if you're not finding it to be life-giving. So give yourself to it. You won't feel it on day one, on day two. It's the same thing, like I, I said this in the last, it was the same thing. My parents live in Texas and we got young kids and Deacon in particular, he's the youngest. So he's growing the most, you know, uh, each time they see him. And when they come from, if it's been like three, four months, sometimes when they see him, what do they say every time they see him? Oh my gosh, he's massive, right? But what do Amanda and I think? We haven't noticed. Unless we look back at the pictures from six months ago, we just think it's Deacon. It's like, yeah, it's so gradual. It's so, it's so just, 
you know, day in, day out, that we don't necessarily notice it until someone draws our attention to the fact that's happening. And that will happen in your study of the word of God. If you pour yourself and say, God, make me humble through the study of your word, do you know what will happen? Is you won't feel that happening in six months or a year from now. Someone will say, you know, you've really changed. There, I've noticed I've noticed that there is something in particular, people that you're not around all the time will come and engage with you and they'll just be like, something's going on. I, I, just, I had a moment exactly like that where there was a, a wife of a friend who I hadn't seen for a good long while and I had, I had finally, by the grace of God, committed myself to really you know, saturating myself in his word. And as I was doing that, I didn't notice that there was a ton of change. And she just, and in the, before a, a basketball game, which was when I tended to be at my most arrogant, um, she just said, there's something very different about, about you. Like you used to talk so much and not shut up and, you know, no jokes, all right? You know, you used to, and, and you just, honestly, you were really proud. She said, but that, you seem to be like asking questions and listening and actually caring what I'm saying right now. I mean, she didn't, she said it much more graciously than I'm saying it now, but that was the crux of what she was saying. I just remember being floored, but I remember thinking, that's your word, God. Like, you don't get any credit. I mean, what, what credit do you get for that, right? None. You just go, oh, it's, it works. Like, it works. Can I just say that? It works, okay? Steep yourself in God's word. Last thing. And this is, this is so sweet. Jesus crushes our pride. He makes war on our pride. He crushes it by showing us that we can't meet God's standard, but that he can. So look at verse 16 with me. This is the most famous verse in this chapter. It's the one that you've probably heard before if you've been around church a little bit. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. In other words, what God is saying there to his people is he's saying, look, all your pride, you need to recognize that if you would come to me as a cornerstone, as a foundation for your life and build your life on me, I'm a great foundation. Just you loving me, trusting me, I am a great foundation is what God is saying. Build your life on me. And then to really understand the true crux of what this text is getting at, we have to understand that it gets used a lot in the New Testament. Okay, so fast forward into Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees and he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. And he says, don't you know, or haven't you read that God has said, I will place a precious cornerstone in Zion, a precious stone, a precious foundation. What Jesus is claiming in Matthew chapter 21 is that he is the stone that Isaiah was talking about, the full revelation of God himself. So where God says in Isaiah, you can build your life on me, I'm a foundation. What Jesus comes and reveals further to us is that Jesus says, not only is God the father of that, but I as his son and the full manifestation of who God is, God in the flesh, am now the demonstration of who you can build your life upon. So it's not just God generically, it's Jesus Christ who is the precious cornerstone. And then in Romans chapter nine, Paul uses the same text, Isaiah 28, and he combines it with the Psalm to say this. I gotta find my spot. Uh, Romans nine, verse 30 through 33, talking to Israel. He says, what shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Okay, so in other words, what Paul has just said is Israel is going, but we have God's law. We're his chosen people. So how is it that we have not been able to get the righteousness of God, but that Gentiles who don't have that law, who are not God's chosen people, have accomplished righteousness, been declared righteous before God? How is it that that has happened? And so Paul answers that question. He says, why? Why does that happen? Verse 32, because... Israel, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, the first half of that is a quote from a psalm, and the second half is the quote from Isaiah 28. So here's why I tell you all that. Because what, P, uh, what Paul is saying as he is saying, Jesus not only in Matthew 21 claims to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 28, this precious cornerstone, that he is saying that unless you believe that you cannot by your own works become righteous before God, but that Jesus fulfilled perfect righteousness, unless you believe that, you're gonna interact with this stone, this precious cornerstone in one of two ways you're either going to believe that you can be good enough, you're gonna be proud, and if you're proud, you will stumble over that stone. You will trip and fall because that stone is there to show you that you could not earn God's righteousness. But if you look at that stone and say, it had to accomplish righteousness for me, and therefore you stand on it, now you no longer trip and stumble over the stone, you build your life upon it, and Jesus becomes the precious cornerstone. So here's how Jesus wages war on our pride. He reminds us again and again that only he, only he can achieve the righteousness that is necessary to be reconciled to God. And he can give that to you, but you can never earn it. No matter how strong, no matter how good at following the rules, no matter how smart, it doesn't matter. You can never accepted into the presence of the living God based upon your own work. Only, only, only by believing that Jesus is a precious cornerstone and saying, I need you. You have achieved righteousness. Now would you give it to me as a gift for faith? I believe. And when you believe, you don't stumble on the stone. Now you stand on the stone. Are you with me? That's the difference. So here's what that means practically for us in terms of waging war on our pride. It means that the way to fight, the way to fight our pride is not to focus on ourselves becoming less proud. The way we become less proud is we focus on Jesus and we take every opportunity we can to learn to delight in him more and more and grow our affection for him and see his perfection Right? That's why we open the word, because it points us to Jesus, the fulfillment of every part of the law, the beautiful Messiah, the one who will reign forever. And as we grow in love for him, just like John the Baptist said in John chapter three, we will say he must become greater. And I delight, I delight to become less. He is everything. And as he grows in beauty 
and value and merit and worth in your eyes and in your affections, you will find that pride melts away. The claws that are so strong and so deep of that pride that says, I am smart and I am good and I am whatever, they just begin to loosen their grasp. Because one by one, the, seeing the merit of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus and worshiping him with passion and truth, it takes every one of those claws and just pulls it out and pulls it back and says, I am better, I am better. I am better. And pride cannot stay. Because here's the good thing, is that, you know, I use the illustration of the burrowing owl. I mean, the prairie dog doesn't have much chance against the burrowing owl. The owl has the claws, it's got the beak, it's got everything. The prairie dog kind of has nothing. Got tiny little teeth, right? But trust in God is not really a prairie dog. It's a tiger. And as you give yourself to trust in God, it will, go to, it will fight against pride, not to give up its home. And we want trust in God to be at home in our hearts, right? So here's what you do. There's, a th- there's so many ways to grow your affection for Jesus, but can I tell you one is to, is to engage in passionate, truth-filled worship in song. It's to come here every Sunday and say, I'm not gonna be embarrassed or hold back. You remember the image? You remember the story of David in the Old Testament? For those of you who have read the Old Testament before, if you've read it, there's this scene where he's so given to worshiping God that his wife is really embarrassed at what an idiot he looks like. And his only response, she's like, you look like an idiot, right? And his response is to say, I will look even more foolish than this because I'm worshiping God. I'm not concerned about what anybody thinks. Man, I would love it if, if we were all showing up here with that attitude and just saying, I don't care what anybody else here thinks. I'm gonna worship God. And whatever physical expression the Holy Spirit calls me to sit down, kneel, raise my hands, I don't care. I will do it because I am deeply committed to worshiping Jesus so that pride would be eliminated. You don't just worship Jesus with passion. When, when you become humble, you worship him with passion in order to become humble. It is a weapon to help you wage war against pride. I was reminded of that. I'll close with this. I'm gonna be done. In fact, team, you guys can come on up. We're gonna have, we're gonna worship. I'm reading this book, Quo Vadis. Anybody read Quo Vadis? Henrik Sienkiewicz, uh, great old piece of literature. It's a, it's a big one. It's a 600 pager, so just fair warning. Uh, but it's a good story about the, last, about, the, about the Christian community in the last days of Rome. And it's a fictional account, but it involves all true characters. And it's going through the days when Nero blames the Christians for burning down Rome, when he in fact burned down Rome, and he is offering them in the arena to the slaughter of the animals. He is sending out small children and women and men to be slaughtered by tigers and lions. I have, I've been shaking as I've been reading it. And the most powerful scene I think in the whole book is the first scene where the Christians are brought into the arena and they kneel down to wait for the animals and they in unison begin to sing hymns of praise to God as they await their death. And I'm just like in tears reading because I'm just thinking, oh. And everyone in the arena is just drop dead silent because they don't, they don't know what to do with people who would meet their death singing praises to their God and declaring you are worthy to die for. Worship in song, passionate worship, to the Lord, it changes us. It changes us. 
But we can't be concerned about how we appear when we do that. We can't be concerned about what other people think of us. We have, to, we have to give ourselves to the truth of what we sing, to set our minds firmly upon it. I mean, to really engage our mind in it and to engage our full self. So I'm done. That's it. Let's do this. I was just praying about this last night and through the week. I really sense that God's spirit wants to invite us to, to respond to his word about pride because I got pride, you got pride, and I want to invite you now. We're going to sing. We've, we've saved ourselves a good amount of time here, so we're, we're well short of our normal ending time here. I want to invite you to listen to God's spirit. We're going to sing a song, uh, and I think we need to just turn this into an altar here because it's good sometimes to just say, look, I will take an active step to say I want to be humbled. I don't want to be proud. And if God leads you, don't do it because I'm telling you, but if God leads you, come down and just kneel and pray. Any elders, any staff here, come and let's pray for folks. We're not gonna ask you, what are you proud about? We're just gonna pray over you. Um, so just come. You know, you can kneel down at your chair. You can just sit quietly. You can stand and raise you and do whatever, but be led by the Spirit to respond. Let's take advantage of this time to put a stake in the ground and say, God, I wanna respond to your word about pride because I want trust to be at home in my heart. And so I will respond. Let's let's. Just meet with God in this time and place and let him lead. If you want to come and be prayed for, come to the altar. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, now we give ourselves to you and pray that you'd guide us. Holy Spirit, come among us now and speak to us. Come among us and do your work. We ask you to do it. We know your only hope of pride's grip being removed from around our hearts and minds. So we pray that you'd come. And would you, Holy Spirit, in these moments now, drive home and do a sealing work of the word preached. Pray that that truth declared now would begin to be sealed in us so that we would know the steps you would call us to. We want to respond to you humble ourselves before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.